All right, team. Welcome to the Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton. And for those of you that have been listening to this podcast for a while, first off, thank you so much for tuning in. This show has been going on for four or five years. And if you've been with me since the beginning, even if you've dropped in and out here and there, it's such an honor to have you tuning into these episodes. This is one of my favorite things to do. And I really try and curate a number of diverse guests to ensure that you aren't being inundated in an echo chamber, to ensure that there are differences of perspectives, of opinions, of beliefs, all in an effort to support your betterment as a husband, as a father, as a leader, in in whatever capacity that you are working towards in your life. And that will continue. This year, I think, is going to be a year of uh, looking at diverse perspectives and having conversations with individuals that I believe have something to offer, uh, even if they are maybe a little bit more uh, polarizing, even if some of the conversations are uncomfortable. And so today, my guest is Traver Bohm. And he has been on the podcast a number of times before. Traver is the founder of Man Uncivilized and uh, the Uncivilized Nation. And he's written a book. He's been on this conversation. He's been on the show uh, quite a few times before. And today's going to be a little bit different because I'm not interviewing Traver, actually. Uh, he and I were having a conversations, uh, having a conversation or many conversations. And we were talking about the rise of victimhood and how we've seen victimhood really become more prominent within our culture, uh, within individuals, within uh, society, within the systems that we inhabit. And so this is Traver and I just having a bit of a dialogue discourse, trying to break down why we think that is. Uh, And there's some interesting research that I share about the evolutionary advantage of victimhood and how it's embedded within our human psyche and experience to try and utilize uh, victimhood, maybe not in uh, uh, the the best of ways, Uh, but we start to get into that. And then we talk about something that I don't think I've ever talked about on the show before, but I've had many people reach out and ask me to comment on, and that is the red pill aspects of masculine culture, the MGTOW, right? Men going their own way, the incels, involuntary celibate. Uh, and so Traver and I just have an open dialogue about these aspects of male culture, you know, our perspectives on them, why they, why we believe they exist, how they interact with them, you know, what, what quote unquote benefit or what, you know, why they might serve a function or a purpose. And it's just a a very open dialogue about these topics. And so, uh, as always, you don't have to agree with everything. The the point of these conversations is not to convince you of anything. Um, I hope that you, you know, listen through a critical ear and you listen to this with not only a critical ear, but an open one to hear some maybe new perspectives, maybe perspectives that you agree with or disagree with. And as always, I would love to hear your thoughts. Um, so feel free to message me on Instagram at man talks. Uh, you can also fire me off an email. Uh, but what would really support is sharing the podcast. So we have grown quite a bit over the last couple months. Um, and that is largely due to you, dear listener. It's largely due to you sharing this podcast. And I'm a firm believer. I've never marketed the podcast once. I've never spent a dollar in marketing. It's all been organic growth and word of mouth, and I love that. I love the idea that 
the community has come together and appreciated these conversations and shared them uh, with the people that mean most to them. And so whether it's this episode or another episode, uh, I would really encourage you uh, to share an episode that you have found to be intriguing and that you've really enjoyed. So with that said, without any further delay, I hope that you enjoy this very real, very raw, very candid conversation. You know, this is, I, I tried to curate this and Traver tried to curate this in the sense that like, he, it was almost like he and I were just sitting by the fire and having a conversation and, and you were privy to it. And so I hope that you enjoy and let me know if you want to hear more conversations like this. So without any further delay, please welcome Traver Bohm. All right, dude. How's it going? Good to see you, brother. Not, it's not very often that I think probably either of us start a conversation with, all right, dude. <laughs> yeah. It's just no formal entry. No, for, all right. I haven't practiced my like, and this is Connor Beaton. Right. One. <laughs> I think after Christmas, it was like 202, you know, <laughs> I attributed to the, I attributed to the gym. I did go to the gym quite a bit. So I'm like, yeah, I packed on muscle. Good man. Like eyebrow raise, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> that happens over Christmas a lot. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I did eat really healthy, but anyway, we're not here to talk about my weight gain or not weight gain. <laughs> Please tell me more, Connor. <laughs> right. All of a sudden, my body's on the on the spot. <laughs> I, I did, although we should have a conversation about like fitness and the male body. And like, I feel like both of us have a lot, a lot to talk about there, especially you with the MMA background and, you know, how, how focused you've been on fitness. But you know, you and I were chatting. I mean, we've been chatting on and off. We talk all the time, but we've been chatting on and off about this concept of talking about men and victimhood and how do we stay in an empowered state mm -hmm. and not fall into this kind of victimized mindset and not fall into this disempowered mindset. And, you know, I remember talking to you a little bit about how I was writing about this in the book and how I'd come across a ton of research around the evolutionary advantage of victimhood mm -hmm. and how socially and culturally when we play the victim, whether it's whether we have actually been victimized or not is almost irrelevant in the according to research. There's an, a social advantage. There's an evolutionary advantage. And so I thought that we could just start with men and victimhood and then, you know, maybe make our way into some other interesting topics. So yeah. maybe I'll just hand the mic over to you. Like, what are your thoughts on how do we draw the line between being an empowered man, recognizing our pain, recognizing where we struggled and suffered, recognizing the systems that we might be in that are, that are causing real duress? And then how do, we, how do we begin to face that? So I know it's a huge sort of question, but let's just sort of start there. Yeah, and let's just set the frame, guys. I'm just going to shoot the shit here for a while. Yeah. And, and really just have an open dialogue rather than feeding each other questions and, and doing anything formal. And probably a lot of this is going to sound like, wow, they're just working it out themselves because this is a big part of what we do is, is work things out ourselves by bullshitting and chatting with each other. I think, you know, it's a, it's a weird dance, Connor. I think it's a duality of men for the most part are still in control of Western society or the world. We can say that if we look at, you know, who's in power. But yet, and if we look at the bottom of that, of, of systems, it's also men who are homeless the most often. Sick, we, we die a decade earlier, eight years younger than, than women do. Addiction, prison. Like we look at the negative statistics and, and we're winning those as well. And I don't mean winning in a, in a positive light here. So I think for a lot of guys, it's actually confusing. 
because culture will say like, well, your problems are irrelevant because there's been a man in the White House since the beginning of the White House. So fuck y'all. And yet that dude may go home and go, shit, I'm struggling and I don't know what to do. And I don't even know if I'm allowed to, to do anything about it. Or I don't even know if I'm, quote, allowed to feel what I'm feeling because so many people have it worse than I do. Or even structurally, that's how it's set up or I've been taught or I'm fed this idea that everybody has it worse than I do. So who am I? So I get kind of the fine line and the dance we're going to do around this topic because I talk to guys every day who downplay what's happened to them. The classic like, well, my upbringing, like a lot of people had it worse. Okay, well, your dad beat the shit out of your mom. Your dad beat the shit out of you. You got raped by your neighbor. Your uncle's an alcoholic. Your sister's a dead heroin addict. But you, yeah, I get it. Like some dudes had it worse than you. But you're also not even, rec- may not even be that traumatic. It may actually have just been like relatively traumatic. And guys aren't even acknowledging or accepting that things have happened to them, right? The male culture brushes stuff aside really easily. Like, oh, you got divorced. Cool. Go fuck a bunch of other women. Oh, you got divorced. Spend a year in a bender. You know, drink your way through it. It'll be done. Blah, blah, blah. But yet, what is the opposite is guys who are now in this woe is me. You know, I I can't. It's so hard to be a man these days. It's all women's fault. It's all everybody's fault. It's the government's fault. It's blah, blah, blah's fault. And there's, I don't know, it feels kind of binary. And I'd love for there to be this middle position of some bad shit happened to me. It may not have been my fault. And I now have to accept that there are more tools and there's more permission than there's ever been before. And if I don't use that stuff, then I will be in a place where I'm really struggling or a hole I really can't get myself out of. And those are my initial thoughts on it. You know, it's, I said, I think we're going to dance around like, yeah, yes, ands all yeah. this whole conversation. What about you? Like, yeah. Are you seeing a binary there? Are you seeing the like, fuck it, nothing happened to me. I just need to make another hundred grand, bang five more chicks and get another Porsche and this is going to be fine. Or like, I'm useless, I'm worthless, I'm, men are trash, all the things. Or are you seeing that middle ground? I think the middle ground is few and far between, you know, kind of like the American political spectrum right now. <laughs> there's, there's not a lot going on in the middle, right? Yeah. It's sort of like everything's stretched to the, to the extremes. But, you know, it's interesting because that mechanism, that behavioral pattern of other people have it worse. You know, they say comparison is the thief of joy. I wrote in... in in the book that I'm writing right now, I wrote comparison is also the thief of healing, you know, mm-hmm. that when we compare our suffering to the suffering of others, we're fucked, you know, like we makes it so much more challenging to start to address the, the pain that we've experienced, the, the legitimacy of our internal experience of that event. It makes it much more challenging to reclaim a sense of confidence or, or sovereignty or strength or compassion or empathy, like all of those things become much more challenging. And I think that what has happened is that there's a large sub, you know, subsection of men that have adopted the mentality of like, well, it wasn't as bad as Johnny's that I grew up with, mm-hmm. right? Or like, mm-hmm. Teddy had it so much worse than me. Or like, what about the people in Asia or Africa or you know, wherever it is, like point point on the map and and look at somebody that you perceive to have it worse than you, 
compare what you're going through to them and then diminish the legitimacy of your own experience. And that, mm-hmm. that then creates this sort of pseudo strong man identity that sure. we try and, and harbor and the victim just becomes even more buried, you know? So I think when we do that, we disconnect from the legitimacy of our experience to the degree where we become the victim to other people, right? To the government, to women. And so I think that that mechanism that you're talking about is so important, that comparison piece, because it brings us to this place of like, it's women's fault. You know, modern dating is a disaster because of women. You know, you hear that a lot. You know, if you don't have to go far on YouTube to find some angry dude talking about how social media and women's, what is it, hypergamy, right? Hypergamous behavior, which well, maybe we should define, Sure, is is sort of destroying the lives of men. And so, so I, I do think that a lot of men have, you know, they go on social media, they talk to some of their bodies, you know, they interact with the world and they see plenty of reasons for them to believe that they are a victim of something, right? A victim to women, a victim to the system, a victim to the government, et cetera. Right. What's the advantage for them though? Is it, is it then the abdication, if that's the right word, of responsibility? Is it like, well, you know, I don't have a girlfriend and a good relationship and a high, it's because of women as opposed to them looking in the mirror. And I guess the second question I'm going to throw your way, because we're talking about dating specifically, right? I, I've also looked, you know, if you see Tinder like puts out results or, or staff every year, and it is that, you know, 10% of men are getting 80% of the swipes from women. So I am always curious about, yeah, and some of it's got to have a seed of truth in it. I guess the the thing that's missing is the next sentence of, so I don't date on Tinder. I actually walk up to people in the supermarket in a non-creepy way and say like, hi, my name's Traver. And, you know, I like your eggs. Here's my phone number. <laughs> what, a, what an innuendo. I like your eggs. <laughs> You're like going straight for the uterus, eh? And just going straight in there. Guys, She's this like, is going to be a whole show on dating You're, you're interested yeah. in like eggs? Like, by all means, here's my phone number. Like, that's actually, that actually might be the best thing of line. laid because of that line? Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, Please, you owe Trevor a direct me message. Yeah, you owe, you owe us a direct message to say thank you. <laughs> I mean, I think <laughs> I think what's interesting is there is a hidden power in victimhood. You know, there is a real, a very real individual power. There's a social power, and especially in our in our Western world right now, victimhood has claimed a tremendous amount of cultural power. Mm-hmm. And so to be seen, present, even if you're just presenting yourself as the victim, mm-hmm. is to have access to a lot of sort of social clout and mm-hmm. esteem and to be revered by other people in some way, shape or form. It, it's interesting. I actually I pulled something from this article on Quillette by this individual, Corey Clark, who talks about the evolutionary advantages of playing the victim. And I'm just going to read you this one paragraph because I sure. feel like this, this is important because this is like research back, right? That there's very real, there, there's very real benefit to this. So it says scholars from the immorality lab, which is amazing that there's even such a thing, the immorality <laughs> lab at the University of British Columbia created a victim signaling scale that measures how frequently people tell others 
of their disadvantages, challenges, and the misfortunes that they suffer. Those who scored higher on the victim signaling scale were found to be much more likely to virtue signal, to outwardly display signs of virtuous moral character, while simultaneously placing less importance on the actual on their actual moral identity. So in other words, victim signalers were more interested in looking morally good, but less in being morally good than mm-hmm. those who less frequently signaled their victimhood. So it's like there's this interesting, that's the end quote, but there's this, you know, the, the, the studies go on and the, this article sort of goes on to talk about how people use, use this virtue signaling and immoral behavior to try and gain a foothold on the people around them to control, to gain power, to gain favor, while sort of acting or being in this space of do as I say, but not as I do. Yeah. And, you know, we could talk ad nauseum about where that behavior comes from and what purpose it serves and whatnot. But I do think that if you are down and you're not addressing your own pain, you know, if you've been beaten down by life, if you've been broken up, you know, you loved somebody and, you know, they cheated on you with your best friend or whoever, and you are bitter and resentful and you're in pain mm. and you don't know what to do with all of that energy, all of that emotion. It's easy to just say, well, fuck, I'm going to go in this direction. And what will make me feel better is by reclaiming a sense of power, reclaiming a sense of confidence by acting in this victim-oriented way because in our culture, it's not only socially acceptable to grant those individuals more leeway when it comes to acting immorally within our culture, right? Because you can say shit, you can do shit, you can... I mean, it's, it's really interesting what you can do if you're in that position. So, that, so I think for a lot of individuals, men and women alike, that has become this sort of unconscious behavior that is easy to adapt when you are suffering and you kind of fall into that victim mindset of it. It's going to be harder for me to get my shit together, for me to heal, for me to face this stuff that's really uncomfortable, for me to see my part in it, than it is for me to go down this path of feeling like everyone's out to get me, you know, life's never going to work out for me and falling into that really confronting and disorienting thought Mm. pattern. You know, so that's, I know I just said a lot there, but I'm curious, like, does any of that resonate? Do you see men, women falling into that trap? Culturally, for sure. You know, I see it. If anyone's curious of like, wow, do these groups really exist? Ask yourself, who are you not allowed to talk about right Mm -hmm. now? Like culturally, who would Connor and I get annihilated for if we brought up whatever groups may be that right now, culturally, have a standpoint that they're untalkaboutable or they're untouchable, they're unquestionable, right? We see this a lot with religion. It's like, well, you're not allowed to question us. Like, well, mm-hmm. that, that's interesting. Now it's happening across all kinds of social strata, not just the upper echelon of like religion. But I see it, My one of my early influences was Carolyn Mace, if you've read her stuff. Mm-hmm. And remember her talking about a conference she was at that she sat back and watched people introduce themselves to each other. And then the second part of the introduction was like the worst thing that ever happened to them. So it's like, Mm -hmm. hi, my name is Traver. I was molested as a kid. Hi, my name is Susan. Like I have terminal cancer. And it was this weird, she called it like wounding all over each other or woundology. 
And really, it was almost competitive Mm -hmm. of if I have the thing worse than you, then I'm afforded and allowed to have a lack of responsibility. And and I want to be very careful here that we're not coming across as uncompassionate or unkind or uncaring about legitimate shit that happens to people. Yeah, we we legitimately spend all of our existence supporting, like literally all of our existence is to support people to deal with the hard shit that's happened to them, you know, and to, al- and to alchemize, alchemize that in, or metabolize that into something productive so that you can contribute, so that you can feel empowered. Like, so, you know, I think we're just talking about something that we've noticed, we just noticed socially, culturally, and yeah, and then, I mean, I think that we should probably talk about maybe how this ties into like men, the manosphere and stuff like that. In, in sure, a second. sure, sure, sure. Yeah, well, this. we'll head in that direction. You know, just to talk about grief and to talk about pain alchemization, Christina Rasmussen has this beautiful explanation that there's a waiting room, that like something happens to you, a parent dies, a kid gets sick, you get sick, blah, blah whatever the grief thing is, and you go into this waiting room. And anybody who's really experienced rock bottom feels like they're, I remember getting divorced and, and telling people like, I feel like I'm underwater and the rest of the world is floating by and I'm just like stuck here. And there's a time to be in that waiting room. There's a time to sit and heal up and like lick your wounds and, and recover a bit, get your energy back, get your life force back. But what I think a lot of, a lot of people currently are doing is both staying in there too long or two, running into the waiting room when nothing's really bad happens, right? Like, but, but, but wait, I don't know what to do with myself. So I'll don the victim mindset. I'll don the victim cloak so that society will excuse me for not actually producing anything, not taking any risks, not bettering myself, not furthering my, my cause, whatever it may be. And so to transition that into men and the manosphere, and we can even name it to some of the more aggressive aspects of MGTOW or incel culture, it really is men stopping in their tracks, not dealing with the wound itself, but it feels like hyper-focusing on one or something other than themselves as the cause of their pain, rather Mm -hmm. than saying, actually, you know what? My wife left me and that sucks and I'm fucking heartbroken and I'm going to spend three months going to therapy, being heartbroken, hanging out with my boys, taking care of my body, eating again, and then realizing that that's one person and it's not an entire population who has, quote, wronged me. And I'm not going to hang out with guys who are just looking and generalizing about an entire population and blaming them. I remember hearing about hypergamy. And for people who don't understand that, it's essentially in this world, like a woman's dating you and you make $25 an hour and then she finds a guy that's making $27 an hour and immediately leaves you and jumps up to him or whatever it may be. You know, it's, it's like acquiring more resources through relationship. And I remember yeah, hearing they, this. Can I, in, go ahead. Can, can I just jump in and give the definition yeah. there? I feel like, so hypergamy or hypergamy, depending on who you hear say it or talk about it. So two versions, the practice of Practice of marrying into an equal or more prestigious social group or caste, or the act or practice of seeking a spouse of higher socioeconomic status. So yeah, the the essence there is like that you that you continue to seek out. I mean, if you're in the red pill community or like the manosphere or like MGTOW or wherever it is, it's generally hypergamy is female oriented behavior. 
according according to them. It's that this is this is like a female way of being. So I just wanted to put that out there. Beautiful. And it's believe in those communities. It's viewed that this is the primary drive of all women. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is primary. There are no women who aren't looking to jump up to the next social strata by leaving you and dating or marrying somebody else. And I remember hearing this and thinking, you know what? This exists. It exists in a very small percentage of women, just like it exists in the physical form where you have the 52-year-old retired dentist dating a 24-year-old who's just walked out on his 52-year-old wife and three kids and is now hypergamized to, that's a word, to a younger body or a younger energy or, or whatever. And it's, it goes with resources and looks and blah, blah, blah. And I thought, okay, that exists too. Now, there are infinite numbers of examples of the opposite, mm-hmm. of women staying with men through their struggles, through their injuries, through their job losses, through their grad school, through all the things. And there are infinite number of men who stay with their partners through you know, even though their 24-year-old assistant is hitting on or whatever it may be. And to adopt that as a core belief, man, that is just like, why are you taking one belief and putting it on an entire population? To me, that says, I'm actually afraid of women. Mm. I'm actually afraid of getting hurt. I'm afraid of, of looking in the mirror and saying also that the only thing I have to offer a woman, the only thing, is my bank account, my house, my resources, et cetera. That is how underdeveloped of that man to think that and how obtuse to think that, okay, this is all women want, period. It feels like the all men want is sex, all women want is, is money. Like, okay, cool. I, I remember being in junior high as well, but let's... Well, it, I feel like, I feel like it, it puts you into a kind of victim mindset right out the gates, right? Because it's like, if I... I will be I will be victimized. I will be victimized by women unless I'm able to financially crush, you know, mm-hmm. and enable them. And so my entire being, my my masculinity, my success as a man, how I'm going to get women, how I'm going to get the women that I think that I want to be with, all rests on that. And it's like, well, you know, like that's that's a part of the that's a part of the victim mindset right is that it collapses your critical thinking down to very extreme oriented binary ways of thinking where other people are out to get you other people are trying to take advantage of you other people are the cause of your problems so now a man has really good quote unquote rational reasons. I'm not saying that they're actually really good, but you know, he's got really good rational reasons to believe that if he doesn't perform properly, if he doesn't sort of hold this one area of his life, that his wife is going to leave him or she's going to fuck the pool boy or like whatever, you know, go find somebody who's got a ton more money. And it's like, well, that's, that's a very interesting way to, to want to and choose to live your life, mm-hmm. you know? And so, but anyway, I think, I think that it's a slippery slope. I think the other thing I was going to say is, you know, before, I think in some ways our culture is rearranging itself around the power of victimhood, you know, and say more about that. Well, I think that it's become, you know, if you look at Twitter, you look at social media, if you look at cancel culture, who has the power on social media, who has the power in cancel culture, right? It's people who whether or not they have been, believe that they've, say that they've been victimized. Maybe they have in some cases. 
And that power is tremendous, right? It's like, you can't disagree with me. You know, I mean, we've had conversations about somebody years ago who, you know, basically said that, that I, that when they posted on their social media account, no one was allowed to disagree with them. Otherwise, right. They, they would feel victimized in some capacity, right. They would feel wronged in some capacity. And it's like, well, that's what an interesting, what an interesting way of being. And so People consciously or unconsciously have realized that there's a tremendous amount of power in having other people conform. So like controlling the people around you, controlling the narratives around you, getting people to trying to trying to get people to act in the way that you want. It's almost like the opposite or the antithesis of, you know, misogynist behavior of like, I'm going to abuse my authority and I'm going to abuse my power. And the, the, the polarization of that is I'm going to abuse my victimhood in some, in some cases, right? Not again, we're talking about the extremes. We're not talking sure. about the people that have actually experienced things that cause, you know, that cause the, the, them to be a victim. But it's like, I'm going to use these, this belief or this notion. And so I think in many ways, when I say that society is altering and restructuring around this victimhood, it's the antithesis to things like the perceived patriarchy, right? It's like, how do you combat that? Well, you say that that structure has been blanket statement oppressive to every human being, right? And that all of us, right? Men are victims of it. Women are victims of it. It doesn't matter your race. doesn't matter your gender. doesn't matter your, your religious belief. It's just everyone's been a victim to it. And then you start to regain power or you start to claim power by saying, I've been a victim. And so you need to acquiesce to what I say, to what I want, what I believe, to the outcomes that I want to have happen. And if you disagree with me in any way, shape or form, I don't want to have a conversation with you. I don't want to have critical discourse around it. I don't want to have a debate around it because you are the oppressor. You are the villain. Mm -hmm. And so, and that, you know, I think we can take that mechanism and and go into like a relationship for example you know and sort of make this a little bit more manageable so if you look at the relationship you know my wife and i work with couples all the time and one of the most common deteriorations within a relationship is when one or both parties feel like they are a victim to the other person's behavior right it's like they've made me feel this way you know they're just so critical all the time or they don't listen to what I say, or they don't do what I want, and I'm a, I'm a victim to their behavior. And the other person is doing the exact same thing, right? It's like, they're always complaining about me. They never listen to me. They, and so you have two people's sort of victim orientation, butting heads and having, having it out. And it starts to destroy the sanctity of the relationship. It starts to destroy communication, right? Because how do you have communication when both people are in that space? And so moving people, the very first step usually of working with a couple is helping them see their own individual behavior within the context of the relationship, right? Moving them out of their victim orientation that the other person is the bad person, right? That the other person is causing them to feel a certain way or restricting them or confining them or imprisoning them in some capacity. How do you, how do you, like, what is step one with that? It, it feels like you have two people who are both infallible 
And it's the other person. So it's like, I can't be wrong. And then person B is like, well, I can't be wrong. Mm-hmm. Then where, where's the middle ground of like, okay, maybe I fuck up every once in a while. And I'm sorry. <laughs> like, how do you get to the humanity when, when you're working with couples? Like, what is the first step with that? I mean, honestly, I think the first step is getting a broader picture of the both individuals' pasts, right? So like, yeah. you know, Vienna, a wife does a lot of work with internal family systems. So she gets the full, what's called a genealogy of that person's family history, you know, their parents, their upbringing, their siblings, their grandparents, what they were like, how they dealt with conflict and anger. And so you start to build a more robust picture of what has led to that person believing in those patterns in that moment, right? Because generally they're, they're pre-relational generally, mm-hmm. right? There's something that has happened in their environment as an upbringing that has caused that. And, and so that's, that's only step number one. And then step number two is helping them see the recreation of that pattern, right? Because a lot of the times it's like, if you are in a relationship where you feel like, you know, your wife is, doesn't, never wants to be intimate with you and was withholding sex and, you know, whatever the story is. And then you start to get a picture of what their upbringing was like. And, you know, dad was never around and mom, you know, wouldn't give physical intimacy or whatever the case is. Then you can start to see this recreation of this pattern of, I still feel like I'm a, I'm a victim to people not giving me or giving me what I need or what I want. And then when you start to show and outline the recreation of that pattern, that individual can then start to extract themselves from I'm the victim to mom and dad, to my wife, mm-hmm. to whomever, right? And then also, you know, I think it's, it really is about empathy. It's about being able to inject empathy and compassion back into the conversation. Because if you, when you feel like your, your partner, like you're the victim of your partner's behavior in some way, shape or form, you genuinely and generally lack empathy for that other person, correct? Because it's like, you're making me feel this way. You're doing this to me, right? I have no choice. I have no power. I have no freedom. And so it's about reinvigorating some life of empathy back into that, back into that relationship. So those are just a few things, although they're quite large things. Connor, how, how do you then, if we look at, let's just take the archetypal guy, and, and I'm not picking on MGTOW here because I actually do believe a lot of the, like having your own purpose, taking care of yourself, making your money, knowing why you're here, having a mission, like not making women the sole purpose of your life. I think there's a lot of value in that. Mm-hmm. And yet there is this shadow side that feels like is, is in the corners of movements like that, that secretly has a lot of blame and hate for women. How do you take a guy who's kind of wrapped in that same victim mindset, but isn't in a relationship. So he's not, it's not like my wife's an oppressor and this and this, it's just, I'm victimized by all the things. What's mm-hmm. your take with a guy like that to, to just to start to right the ship and pull him out into a more empowered space? I, well, I was just going to say, I feel like we should define what some of these terms are just in case people okay. don't know what MGTOW, red pill, sure. uh, incel, because like we've, we've kind of put them out there a few times. So Maybe if you want to give sure. your version of a couple of those, and then I can, I can do mine as well. And sure. I think it'll just give some groundwork. Yeah. So to me, you know, and I looked at MGTOW when I got divorced, I guys be like, Hey, check out this movement and it's men go their own way. And my understanding of the premise, and I imagine that there's like a spectrum of this, 
is that it's saying the old paradigm of relationship and the old paradigm for men is happy wife, happy life, right? Like your job in this world is to acquire, and I'm going to use some shitty terms, but just go with me here, acquire a partner and then mold yourself to making her as happy as possible by sacrificing, by giving up, by providing, by not stepping into your own power, but almost it's like you become the classic like sitcom guy. You're a little bit dumb. You're a little bit fat. You're a little bit undermotivated. You got a little bit of Homer Simpson in you and your partner is the star. That's the old paradigm. And so MGTOW was saying, hey, wait a minute. What if we actually did something different? What if instead of dating women in your 20s, you built a business? What if instead of going to the club till two o'clock in the morning, you went to the gym till 11 and then got a good night's sleep and kicked, at, you know, kicked ass and, and, and did your own thing? That was the basic premise of it, it seemed. And it felt like it was especially valuable for guys who were coming out of a breakup or coming out of a divorce who may be quite, and for good reason, upset or bitter because they're paying child support, they're paying alimony, they're, they got kind of fucked over by the family court system, which is a whole nother conversation, which doesn't usually tend to favor men. Mm. So it's saying to these guys, hey, this thing happened to you, it sucks, or you're hurt, it sucks. Here's a different way to build yourself back up. You're going to take women and you're going to put them on the side and actually focus on you. Now, that was my basic understanding of it. And then when I dove into it a little bit, I found what seemed like a lot of wounded men who on the further end of the spectrum were saying, do all that stuff. And by the way, all women are hypergamous. All Western women are feminist feminazis. Go get yourself like an Asian woman, a South American woman, get someone younger, get someone who you have power over, either culturally or monetarily, so that you can't get hurt again. And that was what was in the shadow of it. And again, there's, I'm sure there's spectrum. I know MGTOW has done wonderful things for some guys, and I, am, I imagine it's done some pretty toxic things to other guys. So it's kind of wrapping up by saying that it's done good things for people, right? It's like, if I'm a guy whose ex-wife and three kids are living in my house and, and I'm in a studio and 90% of my paycheck is going out and I'm depressed, it's saying, hey, maybe this isn't the best time to go get another girlfriend. Maybe now's a really good time to go to the gym and to better yourself and figure out a mission and reestablish your relationship with the church, if that's your thing, community service, like take your life focus off of women and it will, it will refocus you in a different way. So I don't want to just sit here and bash it, but I do think that the corners of it, which was saying, like, if you go to the corners and hang out in the shadows, there's some real toxicity. And it felt like if I stay in this community myself, like just, just kind of exploring it, that I can see how easy it is to get down the rabbit hole of that echo chamber being like women bad, you know, mm. women take, you can buy sex and not have the relationship. It's like, it felt like you can get, here's a way to get all of your needs met without ever having your heart involved, which mm -hmm. as we know, means there's going to be some needs that really aren't met, but they may not be as popular. So that was my view or, or my understanding of MGTOW. How, if any, would you differentiate that from like the red pill communities, which are out there? Because I think red pill has kind of 
it's changed quite a bit over the years. And I don't know if there's yeah. too much difference between like red pill and the manosphere, right? I think those two are kind of interchangeable, but do you see any difference between like MGTOW and the red pill or manosphere communities? I think MGTOW and the manosphere, I would say are pretty linked, right? Where there's like, there's a sexual market value is placed on people. It's like that. It's very binary and very economic as far as like, hey, you want to, and this is, I know this is terrible, but like score a eight as a woman who's an eight. Well, then you have to get an eight income. And it's, it's very, mm. it's very numerical. It's very, it's, it's just lacking any heart. I think the idea of a red pill though, what I've seen changed with COVID where it used to just be the dating community, the men community, the manosphere, et cetera. Now you have a lot of people who are going, okay, conventionality, my term, the civilized world, the you know, standard media, like the government, everything that's public is, is blue pill. Like, hey, do you just want to follow one of, do you want to follow Fox or do you want to follow MSNBC? It's, it's all blue pill. And there is this whole other evolution of consciousness and, and unplugging from the matrix which is where this all mm -hmm. comes from, that I think there's a bleed in now of those two communities where if you say red pill, red pill five years ago, it was just dudes. And it was just dudes following this one way. Now, if you say it, you have women who are like, yep, when did you take the red pill? I even saw it was just this great post, interesting post a couple of weeks ago, a guy said, what was your red pill moment? Mm. And then a question box. And so many people linked news, men and women, but it was like news stories. Like the, you know, mostly peaceful protests where that dude's standing in front of like a city on fire or something yeah. like that. And they're like, that's when I lost, you know, the, the fourth booster in a country that has the highest COVID rates. Like that's when I started right. believing all this. Yeah. And then incel. Yeah. My Go ahead. Go ahead. No, 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 please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Incel. And then I'll, I'll jump in after briefly. Incel to me is, is I'm far less familiar with, but the involuntary celibate. So people who literally, if they just aren't able to find a way, be it however they're created, to enter into the dating world or the sexual world. So it's someone who is, and, this, and just hear me out, guys. Like, I'm not trying to shame anybody, but it's lower IQ. It may be a physical disability. It may be just low EQ. It may be someone who's just very insecure, very immature, and doesn't feel like they have any access. And I know I'm using this term, access to women or access to sex, which we can say, hey, that's, wow, that sounds so binary. That sounds so awful. But there are a lot of men who don't feel like they have access to a world that they see on Instagram, that they see on Tinder, that they see on, on media. They may be just horribly shy. They may be horribly socially awkward. They may have something that physically keeps them out of the, the quote game. So I have compassion for them and I don't believe a lot of them either. I'm like, really? Mm. Really? There's nothing redeemable about you. There's nothing lovable about you. You're not, there's nothing that you can, that's attractive about you. It also feels like it's another pit that men put themselves in it's like the bottom of the shadow corner of MGTOW is like, there's so much anger in there and there's so much hatred and there's, there's such an echo chamber. And I feel like I'm rambling, but that's my kind of take on all of it. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, again, to go back to us talking about 
you know, victimhood and some of the structures that, you know, systems that men are living in. I think that, you know, you just, you can look at some of the data, some of the research around fewer men are graduating from college, right? Quite, quite a few less, mm-hmm. you know, it's significant. And the rates of men that are living at home up until like their late 20s has started to increase quite a bit. So it's something like, I can't, I couldn't find the numbers exactly just while you were talking there. But if I remember correctly, it's something like 20, 24, 25% of men still at the age of like 28, 29 are still living at home. That's and the, and the, rate, the rate of men that haven't had sex before 30 yeah. is starting to skyrocket in like the last few years. It's something almost, I think it was like 28% of men haven't had sex by the age of 30, you know? That's and so it's like- US, so you, In the West? Yeah. That's yes. insane. Right. And so, you know, you couple that with the guys that are on Tinder that are swiping right ferociously, right? right. Just through hundreds and thousands of women and not getting any conversations, right? Not getting mm-hmm. any dates, not getting any replies. And that's mm-hmm. very real. That's, I mean, you can look at the Tinder data that some of these guys are putting out. They're like, I swiped right to 4,000 women and I got a hundred of them to swipe right on me and none of it led to a date. You know, I didn't, I, get, I didn't meet up with one woman. It's like, well, that's fucking, that's really disheartening, right? That's a very real experience to then go, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with my physical form? What is wrong with me socioeconomically? And so you, you have this, you have many, many factors, I think that's leading to what a lot of men are experiencing, you know, especially within the younger generation, where they're going online now they're finding one another Mm. and of course the perceived problem is women right and so i would say i would agree with your assessment migtow and the red pill community and and incels you know for the for the most part i don't think i would really add too much to that i think you did a good job i think red pill has evolved over the years where you know it was largely you had guys like rollo tomasi who are he's sort of like the granddaddy of the red pill community right with the rational male and whatnot and i think you know for myself i've always i've i've i mean i've read a tremendous amount of his material people like jack donovan because i want to understand too where some of the men that i work with are coming from or just some of the, you know, the hate mail that I get sometimes online or just like the, the random comments on, I don't actually get hate mail, like, let's be honest, but the, you know, the random comments on YouTube you get from, from people, you know, I, I remember I started man talks and like the first I got, I got so many comments from women being like, why do men need, and this is ridiculous. And this is misogynistic. Yeah, yeah. And then, yeah. and then every once yeah. in a while I get to like, you're a beta cuck. And I was like, I remember the first time I got that, I was like, what the hell is the beta cuck? And I had to like, go look <laughs> it up. Like, okay, interesting. And, and, you know, oh. so, so I've dove in to that realm to, to really try and understand it. But I think I would summarize all of this by saying, I remember reading a quote by Rolo Tomasi where he said something, I'm going to paraphrase, but something along the lines of like, you know, hell curse Carl Jung for putting the idea into society that men and women have a masculine and a feminine. And so he's really goes against, and I think he really goes against the idea that men have any feminine nature within them, any feminine nature at all. And so I think that goes to your point, you know, you're using the word heart, 
I mean, we could use the word, you know, heart, love, et cetera. But I think that within the red pill community, not maybe not all of it, but my understanding is like, you are devoid of any feminine nature as a man. And that women are feminine and men are masculine and never shall the two meet. And it's a very polarized binary modality in some ways, which I get. I think the appeal of things like the red pill culture is that it is so certain, right? Like you read the material and you're like, oh, this is a doctrine. This is how things are, period, full stop. And as men, it's like, man, that's super appealing. It's so appealing. It's like, if you could just tell me exactly, if you just tell my rational brain exactly how everything is in the world, I'll be good, right? My, my sex life will be good. My relationships will be good. My finances will be good. My fitness will be good. If you can just tell me exactly what to do, how to do it, and how to, how to think about things, that would be great. And so I think, yeah. I think in some ways, you know, MGTOW, Red Pill, and even incels to a certain degree offer quality of certainty that so many men are missing in their lives and so many men haven't been trained how to deal with. You know, uncertainty is, and our relationship to it as men is paramount, you know, because in some ways our relationship to uncertainty is our relationship with chaos, with the feminine. And so if we don't know how to deal with that, we can find ourselves, I think, in a in a bit of a in a bit of a rabbit hole. So anyway, I just wanted to add that on. Where do you think we should go from here? Because now that now that we've opened up that conversation in that box, <laughs> this is I love this stuff. It's it's fascinating, and I re- I remember reading the Rational Mail and thinking mm-hmm. part of me was like, wow, this is really helpful. It's really mm, explanatory. Totally. There's and some. Then, I mean, the, I think that there's some good stuff in there. Yeah, there was this other part that was like, what about the humanity? Uh-huh. What about like? just the human part of this, that, that not everything is entirely transactional and entirely like, well, you're a 7.2 on this perfect scale and I'm a 6.1. So again, like never shall we meet as opposed to, I think it removed the necessity of risk of like, mm. I can't go talk to her. She's in a different category and only wants this thing. And I don't have this thing. And so I can't walk or, or, or I can get her, but she'll leave me at some point for somebody yeah. with a higher status. So now I don't have to take the risk of just walking up to a human who you have no idea what her background is, no idea what her life goals are, no idea of what her personality is or what she wants and saying like, hi, I like your eggs. Let's go scramble them. Whatever the, the magic. That I'm glad that we gonna, added another layer to that. <laughs> magic of this podcast. I think it really does remove the risk, which then if we, if we circle this back to, then I can't be a victim if I don't take any risks, or I can never view myself as being a victim if I don't take any risks. And so I'm curious though, if we kind of swing back around, for guys who are listening to this, who are on the fence of that, like where I doubt we're going to talk to the hardcore, you know, guys who are like, you know what, fuck it. It's all women's fault. I hate them. They're getting Asian, blah, blah, blah. Like, but to the guy on the fence, how do you talk about inspiring empowerment? Like, hey, actually, you can change your life. And, and maybe this isn't the, the six months or the year of your life where you should be dating. You should, you know, clean up your act a little bit, move out of your parents' house, start hitting some weights, make a little bit more money, and not do that so that you acquire a higher quality mate, but you do that because 
you acquire a better life. What's, what's your kind of mode or MO when you're talking to guys who are kind of down in the dumps in that way? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I've worked with a number of guys that have gone down the like red pill, MGTOW path, you know, and looking for answers, looking for a way of being. And, you know, in some ways it has helped them and in some ways it hasn't. I think for me really is about what are some of the core tenets that that bring us to a sense of reward, fulfillment, direction as men. And that's a sense of what I refer to as self-leadership, right? Is that if you can develop the skills within yourself to lead yourself more effectively in your health, your finances, you know, in your social skills, then you are more likely to attract the type of partner that you really want to be with. Mm-hmm. And because, and then it's not about them. You know, I think the interesting thing about a lot of the commentary within the red pill culture, within the MGTOW culture is it is inadvertently about women and it's about how they, how they do or don't act and how you need to, in some ways, it's almost like in some ways, it's like you need to conform to acting this way so you can get a woman, you know, this type of woman. And so for me, it's always about how do you empower a man to lead himself more effectively in any area of his life? Because that leadership is going to empower him. That leadership is going to allow him to, is going to force him to have to confront his own shit, right? His own victimhood, his own shadows, his own pain, his own sabotage mechanisms, how he, you know, has maybe destroyed or, or ripped apart previous relationships, how he sabotaged those relationships. And for him to, for him to see his part more effectively and more clearly so that he can attract the type of relationship that he wants or the type of career or build the type of business that he wants. And I think for us as men, that's freedom. You know, that's the freedom that we all seek. I think that in our masculine core, we want freedom and it can come out sideways sometimes, you know, our desire for that freedom can come out sideways. And so for me, it's like, here's what, and again, I think for me, I, I also admittedly use a more Jungian lens, right? And so I write about this in, in the book that our, how we treat women is how we treat our unconscious. And so the notion there is that if you see women as a certain way, if you see them as the problem, if you see them as out to get you, that's how you view your unconscious mind. That's how you view the parts of yourself that you don't want to deal with, your victimhood, your sabotage mechanisms, right? You don't want to interact with them. And that's, that's just going to blind you from a part of yourself that is likely tearing apart your life. So sometimes I'll say to a man, let's investigate your belief systems about women. How do you actually view them unfiltered, right? Because for some men, you know, it's like, well, I love this woman that I was dating in high school and she fucked me over. And I honestly, I still haven't got over it, right? Or my ex-wife took advantage of me and she took the kids and took the money and I was left with nothing and, and I'm bitter and resentful towards that. And so, so I would say that those are the main things is, is developing a deep, rigorous sense of self-leadership and then really investigating what are the stories and the beliefs that you hold about women because they are a mirror and a reflection for a part of yourself, a big part of yourself that you probably need to get in touch with. But what, mm. what about you? I'll, I'll, I'll throw my own quote at Young, which is very similar of how you fuck your woman is how you fuck the world. Mm. And I think for a lot of guys who aren't fucking anybody, 
<clears throat> they're also impotent to penetrate the world with their ideas, with, with what they want to do. Yeah. They're, they're literally, they're not. And then we can take that quote and, and say, like, passionate, are you generous? Are you attuned? Are you giving? Are you, <clears throat> sorry, are you overly aggressive? Are you selfish? Right. How do you exist in the world is very similar to, I believe, how you exist in the bedroom. And for a lot of guys, that's a scary place. It is insecure. They do have to get hyped up. They do have to get drunk. They do have to get stoned. They have to have a Red Bull. They've got to look at two hours of porn first to get themselves in a state where they can actually deal with penetrating the culture or penetrating consciousness with what the fuck they're here to do. And I have compassion for guys who may not have the skill set or the drive or the quote genius or the, I don't know what I'm here to do. And yet that's the investigation I want them to take. And so I think you've hit on really good points of also, it has to be from Young and Young's perspective. Yeah, you got to look inward. What is your relationship with the unconscious? What is the relationship with your wounds? And what is your relationship with the 3D? What is your relationship to money, to work, to resourcing, to your body, to your health, to the opposite sex, to other men, to your, your bedroom? Like, how do you want to exist in the world? And what do you want to do about this very short time that you've been given? And it feels like a lot of men have just taken us, especially recently, and I'm just going to assume, I know this is a generalization, that a 29-year-old dude living in his parents' house isn't fucking shit up in the world in a good way. And whether, unless that's just circumstantial, which I get, right? Like people have bad shit happen, they, they go back. They lose a job, they, they move back home. They have a hard time, they move back home. And trust me, I've, I got divorced. I've lived in a tiny little studio that people wouldn't have been like, wow, you were crushing shit. Nope, I was not crushing shit. And there's periods of time when that's acceptable. And yet it also feels like for so many men, they feel hopeless. Mm -hmm. So it's like, well, I, the Tinder thing, like I've swiped on 4,000 and no one swiped back. So I'm giving up. Or, you know, I've tried to write the book seven times and I just don't have these two elements in my life that talk about from Francis Weller of, I don't believe in anything bigger than me. I don't have access to the sacred. And so I'm impotent and I don't have access to community. That's conscious, that's initiated, that's like, hey, man, we actually believe in you. I know you. your book has hit. How, how many people did you take your book to before you actually got someone to sign on to it? And how many years? So many, so many no's over the course of three right? years. Yeah. And yet, if I look at your life just to project on you, you have a relationship to something bigger and you have a huge community of men and a very small community of guys who are like, we don't give a shit if you fail a hundred times. We're going to... Mm -hmm. We're going to love you regardless. We're going to support you regardless. We're going to encourage you regardless. But I also have a feeling, Connor, that you are one of the, you're the type of person because you wanted to write a book, period, because you started your own business, because you were a public speaker, because you got on the TED stage, period, that you have a drive that a lot of men have, but haven't accessed mm -hmm. or have accessed. And at the very first roadblock have gone, well, that was dumb. You know, and I don't want to pick on porn and video games and dope, but that's what they fall back into, oh. whatever the, the numbing mechanism. I think I completely rambled and don't remember what I'm talking about. <laughs> no, I mean, I think, I think it's, I do think that it's the, it's the allure of 
you know, what you're really talking about is that there's a lack of mentorship, a lack of role model within the male culture and society. And, you know, I think that things like Red Pill and MGTOW, they offer such a clear path. You know, it's like, here are the rules for how you interact with women. Here are the rules with what you do with your life. And you never need to question them because they're absolute. Mm -hmm. And so here you go. Right. And so it's, it's like an inadvertent type of mentorship for a lot of guys. And again, I'm not shitting on the red pillar MGTOW community. I think that it's, I think that they have supported a lot of men and I find a lot of it very intriguing. And I think that in some cases it's absolutely true. You know, I, I've seen examples of it where it's absolutely true, but I've also seen many examples where it's not right. You know, it's not true and it's, and it is, it is missing something. Yeah. And I think that, you know, we, I think that for a lot of guys that you're talking about where, and you know, again, I've been there as well, right? I've lived out of the back of my car where I blew up my entire life and, and it was a shit show. And there was, there was moments where I like, I almost did have to move back home. I was living in a, you know, with, with four other people and my rent was like 280 bucks and I could barely pay it. And I'm, you know, I'm eating Mr. Noodle every day and, and, and making terrible stir fries with lunch meat. My wife still is fun of me for, <laughs> and, and it was like, you know, it was a rough place. And, and, you know, thankfully though, and this is the, this is the grace of my life and not everybody has this grace. I had an older mentor who helped me during that time, who, you know, made sure that I didn't stray, but I can imagine that if he wasn't in my life, and I lacked the men in my life that were there to support me. And I found an internet community that sort of stoked the fire in me and gave me absolute certainty that that would be very appealing. Mm. And so, but I do think that along with claiming your sense of sovereignty, claiming your sense of self-leadership, there is a component of, as a man, having that, that connection to something bigger than you, but which brings you into contact, almost brings you into contact. I'm trying to figure out how to say this, but seeing the you within everybody, you know, mm-hmm. like being able to connect to the hearts of other people and their experience and their, like I had an experience when we were in Manhattan this weekend and I had walked past this, you know, this man on the street, a homeless guy, and he's wrapped up in a sleeping bag and, you know, he's, he's, you know, just kind of like jumping on the spot to keep warm because it's cold outside. And there's so many people walking past him and I couldn't help but be moved. And so I was going to get coffee. It's first thing on, on Sunday morning. And so, you know, I buy him oatmeal, buy him bananas, buy him a coffee, you know, get him a, a croissant, which is like, it's just what they had in the coffee shop and bring him back and I have a conversation with him. And, and then, you know, walk back to the apartment, give, give my wife the coffee. And I'm telling her about this interaction. I totally, I just completely broke down. Mm. You know, I completely broke down because I stood there and had a conversation with this man named Richard and could see what his life was like, you know, and I could, I could feel that man's heart. You know, it was, it was not horrible to, to say, but there's, there's a kind of like powerlessness and helplessness that you feel that I feel in those moments as a man where I'm like, I can't save every single man, woman, and child that's living on the streets. I can't, you know, some of these problems that we face in our culture and our society are so big that I know that as an individual, I can't affect real systemic change on all of them. And that can feel disheartening. And so I think for a lot of guys, it's easier to either not connect with that part 
mm-hmm. you know, where you can just walk past that person or you can give them something and you don't feel anything or whatever it is, but it's, it's easier to just double down on living in the rational mind than it is to connect mm-hmm. to your heart, to your emotions and to connect with real human experience with the people around you because it is vulnerable. And I think that so many men, especially still loathe that concept. You know, it's like, now if you're vulnerable, you're weak and you get taken advantage of and that's a stupid fucking way of living. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, I feel like in part, what you and I are almost advocating for is, is, is a both end, you know, it's like be manly, you know, like be strong, be, you know, develop self-leadership, develop discipline, get your shit together, make money, you know, like learn how to express yourself sexually and like really feel good when you are having those experiences and don't, don't sacrifice, don't sacrifice your heart to do any of those things. Yeah. You know, like, do you agree with that? Or like, how would you, how would you say that? percent. There's a thousand percent. I appreciate you sharing that story. That sounds wild, right? I'm just oh, like, I totally, I totally broke it down. I like, oh, I didn't even know, yeah. I like didn't even know it was coming on. You know, I like told my wife about this conversation and, and buying him food. And I just, I had my hands on my head. I mean, it'd make me emotional now. just recreating it, but it was like, I was like, ah, I just felt for this man. And yeah, I just, I couldn't, I just felt yeah. for him, you know, so, so deeply. I feel like guys who are disconnected from that and cut off from that and ashamed of that it's like you're you're living your life in black and white because the color the hd color it hurts it's like connor give me the list of five things you want to do on a saturday morning and i doubt stand in front of vienna with my hands on my head and cry about an experience i had with a homeless man is like in the top five yeah yet if i now ask you two years from now about this experience it will probably stay with you where mm-hmm. something that would have been, quote, more manly of like, well, I had a great deadlift this morning. I fucked the shit out of my partner, made an extra 15 grand in, in book sales or course sales. That will be irrelevant. And so it really is the allowance of the deep flavor of life that I think so many guys are afraid of and cut off from because it comes with the duality of discomfort. Mm-hmm. Of on some level, that is a beautiful fucking moment for you. Beautiful and, and, and informative and amazing. And, and just even in the relational sense of like letting V see that part of you, like that's so juicy and so rich. Yet it wasn't one of your more fun moments. It wasn't yeah. like, <laughs> right? And, and, and so I, I feel like a thousand percent that is what we're advocating of. There's going to come a day when we're not here anymore. I've lost people recently, had to have a client recently who just lost his dad. And it's, it's coming. Like, it's just mm-hmm. fucking coming. And I think a lot of people got reoriented around death in one of two directions because of COVID. Either, holy shit, this is real. I better start living a more authentic whole life. Or holy shit, this is terrifying. Let me hide even deeper behind fear. But for the people who went, wow, let me live a richer life so much of that is going to be the felt sense Mm. because you can only see so much and not have it affect you. You can only buy so many cars or have so much money. If there's no feeling behind it, it literally feels like you're cut off from half of this human experience, which is why if you spend time with women and go, wow, you went through 75 emotions in the past 45 seconds. That's wild. 
I don't quite want to do that. Your day was, must have been fascinating. Mm-hmm. Like, granted, like half of them want to turn it down a bit to like seven emotions in 45 seconds. But you and I have also had great emotional days, both challenging emotion or enlivening emotion and gone, yeah, but that was real, right? Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't know why or how we as men have disconnected from the idea, but like, but that's fucking real. Like frustration mm-hmm. is real. Anger is real. Sadness is real. Grief is real. And I don't want anything but real. And mm-hmm. I, when I think when we get to the heart of most men and we cut through that bullshit, because you and I, you've seen this in how many of your workshops? Oh. Guys walk out saying, I feel different. I feel fuller. I didn't know I had access to this part of the... Ex- Everything turned to color. Mm-hmm. Holy shit. I don't want to go back to black and white. I almost feel like it's, you know, as we, as you were talking and as we've kind of been talking, I feel like it's, or not even a feel, I, I think that a part of this is that we can get so caught in the rational mind, you know, and our, and our victimhood is in the rational space, you know, that again, if you look at some of the research we were talking about before, it's like, you can rationalize acting immorally. You can rationalize. I mean, I think about the stupidest shit that I've done. I had a great rational excuse to do it, right? Mm -hmm. To go and watch porn, to go and be unfaithful, to cheat, to lie, to et cetera. There's always a rational reason. And so I feel like to be a more robust, integrated, complete man in some ways, to have a real sense of inner sovereignty and emotional sovereignty and authority with oneself, you, you actually need to confront the hard things. You need to experience the hard things. You need to feel them. And, you know, I do believe that men's work begins in pain. You know, it mm. begins with us being able to feel into, feel into the pain of our experience, feel into the loss, the grief, the suffering that's out there, that's within our lives, and to learn how to, as Francis, well, I would say, more effectively carry those things, you know, that we, we become stronger we become stronger as men. We learn how to metabolize those things for ourselves, for our families, for our communities. And then we become more effective vessels of leadership, you know, and that to me is what I think the world is asking of men or not even asking of from men. I actually, I actually don't think, so I'm wrong about that. I actually don't think the world is asking for men to do that. You know, I think that in some ways, well, I won't get into that, but I think that life is asking of us in our, in our sort of like deepest calling is to do that, you know, as sort of an adventure down that path. It's the hero's journey. It's male initiation. You know, it's all those things sort of wrapped up into one and they are deeply confronting, you know, and they are, they are really fucking hard sometimes. Like still to this day, still to this day, I'm like, man, (laughs) I could just, I could just turn the light switch off and walk away from everything I'm doing and go back and, you know, work a nine to five and, and shit would like conceptually be easier, you know, and not as complex, but that would bring its own set of challenges. You know, it's like easy and safety are not as good as we think that they are. I think in our culture, we have, we have pedestaled easy. We have pedestaled easy and safety to such a crippling degree where we have domesticated men, we have broken down relationships. You know, I mean, we could even get into some of the stuff that's happened over the last year and a half around psychological, mental, and emotional detriment that 
that people globally have paid for the over-prioritization of safety long-term. You know, and there's a lot of research that's shown that something like lockdowns has had a tremendous deficit now long-term on the, on the mental and emotional well-being of everyone that's had to endure them. So anyway, that was a rant that maybe went into a direction that didn't need to, but. <laughs> no, I, I think it's important. I, I dig it because, you know, if we I think there's a tie between victimhood and safety and there's yeah. a, a safety in donning that moniker and that crown because you're not reti- required to take risks. You're not required to show up in all the ways that you could show up. And I'm, I'm talking about here and let's call it false victimhood as opposed to mm-hmm. like, there's a currency to it. Right? There's an actual currency to victimhood. I remember seeing a, a quote or a meme of like, you know, when victimhood becomes currency, watch out for counterfeits. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, welcome to the last two years of yeah. holy shit. This, you get paid for this on some level. And, and this is when I tied back into Carolyn Mace back in, in my 20s reading about that, where she would ask sick people, what do you get out of this? Mm. What do you get out of this? And people were like, I don't get anything. And then they would slowly chip away at it. And brother, I remember having a workman's comp client when I was intern in acupuncture school. And every week, back, 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 same issue, same amount of pain, same thing. And then finally, a intern, or sorry, a supervisor pulled me aside because I was so frustrated. I was like, my shit's not working. What do I do? Blah, blah, blah. And he goes, he has a paycheck that's assigned to this not getting better. You can't beat that. Not yeah. your needles, your herbs, your whatever. It's it's not going to be more important than the fact that he gets paid to be hurt and be in pain. And I went, wow, that is a clear cut example. Like this guy is so disincentivized to get better because then he has to yeah. go back to work. And, and I'm not saying that work and comp, this is all the cases, but this was that case because this guy had been in our system for years. But energetically, I think it's really important to look at what is the paycheck if I have a perceived safety? What's the paycheck if I actually do call myself a victim? Right? Mm-hmm. We can, if we can use illness as a classic example, if, you, if, you, if I was your boss and you called in and were like, hey, I'm sick today, I'm not going to be like, you have to come in anyway. Like, how dare you? Like, okay, cool, you get the day off. Like, it's, an, it's a thing, right? And so I think the challenge for so many men is they're looking around and going, wow, all of these people who, because we're not in the victim class, even if you've been victimized, all these people get benefits. How do I insert myself into the victim class mm-hmm. by calling myself a victim, even if I'm not? <clears throat> As opposed to saying, hmm, I've been victimized. This bad shit's happened. I'm going to work through this. And then I'm going to step forward into a place where I have to assume responsibility. I have to take risks. I have to get shit on on YouTube with dumb comments about being a cop. I'm going to have to put up with the public. I'm going to have to risk failure. I'm going to have to risk embarrassment. I'm going to have to go up and talk to the girl in the bar or whatever it is. And so how would you, Connor, just for, for men specifically, address the notion of look at the world and look at safety and see it for perhaps the smoke and mirror show that it is? Yeah, I mean, I think you I think you did such a good job with that guy's story of just sort of exemplifying what can happen and and just that we can get stuck. Like I remember working with a few people when I worked at Apple and saw a few individuals who would take sick days 
And then because we were colleagues, you know, it's like, ah, oh, I just didn't feel like coming in. And so I played video games. But these same people were wanting to advance their career within the organization. And so you could see this interesting correlate between them actively sabotaging, right? Using all their sick days, going on camping trips, going, you know, staying at home and just fucking playing Call of Duty and shit like that and not getting the career advancement that they wanted because they weren't showing up at work, right? They're, they're sort of half in. And so, yeah, I, I think that's pretty spot on, right? Is to see what's the currency, what are you actually getting out of being caught in playing the victim? And, and secondly, who had power over you, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the interesting things that we as men, at least the men that I've worked with, struggle to really explore, because that victim mentality, that victim orientation or behavior has an origin, just like everything else. And for most men, it's that they were put in a position of powerlessness by somebody else, right? By another man, whether it was they experienced sexual abuse or some sort of physical or emotional abuse or verbal abuse, or that they were just neglected or abandoned. And so they felt powerless, right? To get dad's love and appreciation and and praised, or they felt powerless because some, you know, somebody exerted kind of physical force over them or social force over them through bullying. And so that I think is where so many of us as men need to explore. This is a great quote that I, I put out in one of the po- podcasts recently from Richard Rohr, Richard Rohr, who's a Franciscan monk. And he said, initiation, male initiation is meant to take men on a journey of powerlessness because without it, every man will use power, right? So until we know, until we as men experience what it is like to, I think, give full effort, you know, like initiation practices, it's like you give everything that you have, you're, you're done, right? You empty your tank physically, emotionally, psychologically, and you are still bested by whatever it is, right? Whether it's ayahuasca or the bullet ants in the glove that are biting the shit out of your hands and you know crippling you for days. Like you, you are rendered powerless. And there's something about that that I think a lot of men are looking for is to be in a healthy way, put in that position. But if a man hasn't experienced that, then can kind of go sideways. Or if a man has experienced that in a really unhealthy way, right? He was sexually abused. He was abused in some capacity. Then he'll he'll avoid being put in what he thinks is a helpless or powerless position, or he'll use that quote unquote powerlessness to regain some level of confidence. So, yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's a thoughtful, we'll just call it a mouthful and a brainful. Wow. I feel, I feel like we should, I feel like we should wrap here. So okay. What, what do we want to, what do we want to wrap on? I feel like, I feel like we just dropped bombs all over everybody that's yeah. listening to this. And, and, you know, obviously, throw us some questions if you, you know, if you listening, if you're listening to this or watching this and you're like, I have questions or I have, you know, comments that I'd want to add in, definitely do that because this is not the end of this conversation by any means. But yeah, what would you say? Like, how do you, what do you see as the journey or steps that men can take to view, confront, and claim in some ways or integrate their, their own, their own inner victim? Because I think it's, for me, I think it's like the final boss. You know, it's like, it's the thing that's waiting for you at the very end of the cave. It's like the nastiest, gnarliest part of what we have to confront. Mm. 
It's a fucking rich question. Not pushing either of our groups. I think right. guys need to get around other guys. And they I need agree. to get around other guys who have gone through this process. Right? If I look at, and I know it could be an odd example to a number of men, but the journey of jujitsu is you show up as a white belt, you know nothing. You know nothing. You have no context even for what's happening. You're just watching, looks like kittens roll on that. And you have to get around people that at every level of the journey go, oh, here's what's really common about what you're about to experience. Here's the joys, here are the pitfalls, here's the frustration, here's how long it's going to take, here's what it did for me, here's what I took away from it, here's how I got through it. That's until you get around the whole story and the whole, the whole circuit, it's almost impossible to see it as anything other than chaos. And so I think for most guys, it's like, but wait a minute, I don't even know what you're talking about. Like this is, it's like trying to explain cooking to someone who doesn't know what food is. So you have right. to get around people who are, hey, this is where I am on the journey. I'm just like you. I don't even know how to tie my pants before I get on this, this, this damn mat. I've just heard that this is something I need to do. So I think especially, and I, I take this from a sentence you've said over and over and over is that men learn by modeling. And so until we see someone and go, oh, I'm like you, I'm, I was like you, I'm like where you were, until we can see that we literally just walk around unconscious because we have no idea that this path even exists. And I had someone ask me yesterday, what the hell is men's work? I was like, I have to describe it almost like religion, that there's, mm. there's a path that men specifically can walk down to expand to heal, to grow, to assimilate, to, to change, to individuate, and not to just to use big words, but to be better at their lives. And for a lot of people, men and women, they're like, oh, I found that through Christianity. And I'm like, cool, that's great. And if you're a dude, here's another specific path that's, that's specific to you. But you're not even going to understand what I'm talking about until you get around a couple people who you go, wow, it feels different when I sit with you. I feel different when you talk to me. I see something in you that I think I want and my life would benefit from, from experiencing. Tell me how you did this. Tell me how, I don't even know what I'm, what I'm doing here. Guide me a little bit. And so I think that's step one is really just getting around other conscious men. And I know that's a big question, right? Like your, your wife's a therapist. How many people do you know that are like, how do I get a therapist? And you're like, well, just that's going to be a journey. Will you just like Google them or do you ask people who's good and are they, then you got to go try a couple out and see like, is this the right person for me? And am I not? And then, oh, then you land on it. So I think first step, Connor, is recognizing for a lot of guys, no matter where they are, it's, it's by unconscious conditioning and a little bit of choice and they can improve or get to where they want to go by unplugging from that conditioning or working through that conditioning and making different choices. And just that idea right there, like you have the power to change your life. That notion, you have the power to change your life. Like if I could drop that into every man, I would. Just that like chip, like boop. You have the power to change your life. I think that's, that's where I would say I would start. How about you? No, I think that's it. I think that's it. I mean, I, I kind of give my, my two cents before, but I, you know, I think... It is really about getting around other men and seeing, you know, seeing different versions of how other men have owned their shit, developed a sense of sovereignty and leadership, 
I like to use the terms like growing down, you know, growing into ourselves, having more depth as a man, because that's, I think that's what you were talking about when you are around other men and you feel something different. It's like you feel a depth within that man that is somewhat intangible. And I think that for most, most men who talk about legacy, who talk about purpose, what they're actually talking about is that embodied experience that you're around a man who has depth, you're around a man who has lived and is living through experience. And so I think that there's something that there's, there's merit in that. And I think the other thing is getting your shit together is not linear. <laughs> you know, I usually say healing is not linear. Okay. Getting your shit together is not linear. And what I, what I see a lot of guys trying to do on the journey of getting their shit together in their relationship with their finances is they, they go for like the internet gurus, right? They're like, do these five things in this order and you'll make a million dollars or, you know, whatever Ty Lopez is selling. And so I think not, not to dig him. I'm sure he's, I'm sure he's helped a lot of people. I loved his commercial. Like the guy's a genius when it comes to marketing. But I think that we, we as men have to let go of that obsession with the rational process, with the linear process, and with the over intellectualization of how we think our life should look and how things are going to go and enter into the unknown territory of, okay, I have no idea what this is going to go, how, what this is going to look like. I have no idea joining a men's group, no idea what this is going to look like going to a men's weekend, no idea what this is going to be like, you know, getting a therapist. I have no idea. I can't even picture what's going to come of it. I can't even rationally think about how that's going to radically change my life. Good. Like that's the direction that you need to go. If you can't answer it, if you don't know how it's going to go, you should probably move in that direction. You know, because if the course is completely laid out for you, somebody is selling you something, you yeah. know, they, they've, somebody's selling you an idea, a sort of like dualistic black and white paradigm. Here are the exact results you're going to get. It's like, no, the, the results you're going to get, the outcomes you're going to get are specific to you, you know, as an individual. And you, you can't beat that. You, you can't package it up. You can't, anyway. That's, that's, that's where I would, and I think I'll pause there before I just keep my room yeah. going. No, um, I think but, that's a perfect place even to wrap up. That's, I, I got nothing to add. And yeah. <laughs> dude, we let should it be an adventure, of- right? Like, let it be an adventure too. I think I will add this, that our mutual <laughs> friend, Jeremy always used to say like a year from now, you won't recognize your life. And that's the goal. That's the actual goal that yeah. it's going to be, you're going to be so different from undertaking this path that you just can't understand that you may be living in a different country, thinking different thoughts, your body's entirely different, your community's different, like all of that's radically going to change. Good. Fucking go for it. That's the goal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. We'll have to do this again. Maybe we should like touch on some current events next time. And maybe we should add like Sly or you know, love bombs on this yeah. conversation and just like pick on some current events. And so if people, you know, if people want to, to have us touch on certain topics, message Traver on Instagram, message me on Instagram, hit us up or just email us through our websites. And I think yeah. that'd be great. Couple guys chatting. So well, yeah, just, yeah, some, chat. some, some uncivilized man talks. I love it. again. <laughs> <laughs> All right, brother. Be well. Love you, man. Cheers. Love you too, buddy. Bye.